Welcome to a financial planning podcast with a down-to-earth vibe. Sasquatch would listen to it while in the shower. This is Through the Pines. On this episode, we break down what you should do with your money once you've retired and you're in the decade of your 70s. This week's financial wizards include Rex Baxter, Brandon Smith, and Dan Nelson, and we'll go ahead and bring them in here. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. If I'm in my 40s, do I need to be worried about what I do in my 70s? Can I tune this one out as those in their 70s tune in? Or uh, should everyone probably have some sort of idea of what to do with their money once they reach that age in retirement? Who wants to take this? Rex? Absolutely. First, thanks for having us on your podcast again, Brandon. We always love being here. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. You need to worry about it if you're in your 40s, because if you're in your 40s, how old are your parents? Probably. Mm, good point. Good point. Right. And sometimes bad things happen to our parents. Sometimes we get dementia or Alzheimer's or accidents or they're incapacitated. And so you better, you better listen, you better listen in close okay. so that you can help your parents through this. If you're in your forties and if you're in your seventies, then maybe you can learn here and, uh, you know, make your kids aware that of what they're headed for. So, all right. Well, uh, if you're in your seventies, so you're retired, I mean, what do you do with, with your nest egg? Do you put your investments in mutual funds or do you put them in cash? Do you, how do you stay invested? What's the actual strategy because you're now officially retired? Yeah, we, we get that question a lot. And in fact, I, I think occasionally as we talk to people, it sometimes people have the perception that, you know, as, as I'm young, I can be aggressive. I can throw it in the market, let it, you know, take the swings. And, and that's not wrong, right? That, in fact, that as long as you can stomach it, that's a really, really good strategy. Um, but, but then oftentimes people think, well, maybe I, maybe I just move it all to cash, right? Once I'm in my 70s and once I need it, I can't afford to let this money move up and down. And, and that is true of, of the money that you're going to need over the next decade or so right? That we need to make sure we've got money set aside that, that won't be moving as dramatically in, in the markets. But, but what, let's say you're 70, you've still got money that you're not going to touch until you're 80, 85, 90. We've got clients in, in, in their late 90s and even I, I think a couple cracking 100. And, and so, you know, that money that's still going to be invested and that you're not going to need for, for one, two or, or three decades um, can still be working for you and, and can still be growing, fighting against inflation. And, and so, again, the answer for allocation, right, in general is is that that it doesn't all go to cash when you're in your 70s, but that we have a, a properly diversified portfolio and those needs, those distribution needs will change and we can kind of talk about that. But but no, it doesn't all go to cash. It, it stays invested, maybe just a little bit more conservative than when you were, you know, in your 60s or 50s. So is this uh, percentage based, Brandon, as far as you know, how much you take out versus how much you leave in? Yeah, great question. Um, highly, your favorite answer. It depends. It depends. Right? Highly, depends. yeah. <laughs> highly dependent on on your personal plan. How much you know? How much money are you going to need to take out over the next five to ten years? Will will drive that decision on on how much we need to make sure is not going to be fluctuating as dramatically in the markets. Uh, in addition to that, we also have to take in, into account the gut factor, right? How much how much can your stomach handle? Because the worst thing we could do for you is, is do a full financial plan, say, hey, we can, this portfolio, this mix, 
will get you through just about any market up or down that we've seen. Um, we feel comfortable with it. We get you going and all of a sudden you start to see account balances fluctuate up or down and you panic, right? And say, hey, I didn't sign up for this, you know, and 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 call us in the midst of a down market and, and ask us to sell it out. Because that, that's where you that's where you lock in all your losses. Very good. Uh, okay, Brandon or, well, Rex, anyone, Dan, um, have you guys seen people make a lot of money once they're in the decade of their 70s? Because maybe they're still working, uh, not full time, but they're still working and they, uh, they're they putting money away. And that's 10 years of growth, potentially 15 years of growth that they, they still have. Have you seen that in your practice? Yeah, I, I've seen it a lot. You know, I, as I get closer to that, uh, which is, you know, six or seven years away, what, what you tend to do when you get this age or even in your 70s is you don't have as much as far as expenses. You don't spend as much money as you typically do when you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s even. And so you do earn a lot more, continue to earn more on your investments. You have a lot more uh, savings. You still have to have some money in the market growing because as interest rates are now going up, but over the last several years, they've been very, very low. You couldn't earn anything uh, you know, with bank interest or that type of a thing. So you're, you're constantly looking to say, how can I have a good portfolio that might have a little more dividends, might be paying three to 4% in a lot of dividends paying stocks, as opposed to more of the small cap companies. So you might change the way you allocate, but you still want to be in the market. You still want to be uh, own equities, uh, have, have uh, money there so that you can get some growth for the future because when you get to be 70, 75 years old, in your mind, you still feel like you're young, usually, and you still feel like you've got 20 or 25 years to live, which in some cases you really do. So you you need to continue to earn. Uh, the money needs to work for you, and you can't just put it in a mattress. So it's real important, and um, and people will uh, might be a little more conservative. Uh, with their investments, but they're still invested in equities. So what are the rules behind some of the products that are out there, IRAs, Roth IRAs, when it comes to minimum distributions, at what age do you have to start taking uh, some of the required distributions? Rex? So required distributions are, are what the IRS calls RMDs, right? We have a lot of jargon in our industry. And, and, these required minimum distributions. RMDs, it reminds me of the Princess Bride, the ROUSs, rodents of unusual size. So are these required minimum distributions of unusual size at any time? <laughs> well, they definitely grow in size. Over they, they should, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the IRS and the government at large, they, they want their $2, right? They want their tax money. And so what they did is when they put IRAs in place back in the, you know, a long time ago, back in the 70s, that might've been the decade of the 70s. Yeah, weird, weird, that's the name of the show. Um, kind, of, kind of coincidental. So anyhow, when they put those in place, they started saying, well, eventually we want our tax money. We're gonna let you defer taxes on this but not forever. We're going to force you to start taking money out at a certain age. And, and that was 70 and a half for a long time. And again, I think I've said this before, but leave it to the government to celebrate half birthdays. Yeah, because um, 
we talked about 70 and a half. All of a sudden you're once you're 70 and three quarters, it's too much. Is that IRAs or what, what, what program is that? So it's, it's what we call tax deferred qualified accounts. And so that would be IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457s, um, employee stock ownership plans, you know, th- things along those lines that are tax deferred accounts. What about Roth? But not Roth IRAs. Roth are tax tax free accounts, right? And so there's there's a difference between tax deferred and tax free. So it doesn't doesn't apply to your Roth. It would apply to an inherited Roth. So if you're if you have a you know a mom or a dad that have passed or a brother or sister or somebody that's passed and left you their Roth IRA, then you do then there's a different set of rules that we'll get into. So the the 70 and a half age changed here a couple of years ago to age 72 mm-hmm. and so now it's not a half birthday now it's in the year that you turn 72 by that following april you have to take your first distribution and then each year after your 72nd birthday you have to take a, a mandatory distribution and and those begin at about um there, there's an irs table that, that you can use it's called table 590 is the table where you can go to the IRS website and find that, but it starts at roughly about 4% of your, of your balances. Is that annually? It's an annual required distribution. And so each year that percentage increases um, by a small amount. And, and so it never reaches a hundred percent that you have to pull out, but it does continue to grow over your lifetime. And so eventually it gets to be large enough, to where you have an extremely difficult time growing your retirement accounts to to continue to grow them above and beyond that mandatory distribution amount. So typically, and for those that are on the the YouTube live and things like that, one thanks for watching because you can actually see as I make hand motions, <laughs> right? As opposed to just just the podcast. But if you picture a rainbow, right? <laughs> your your IRAs are growing and growing, and then it kind of hits the apex, the the peak. And, and that's where your mandatory distributions outpace your growth rate. And then your IRA starts to shrink, not because it's underperforming, but because we're pulling out money at a faster rate than what it can grow. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's kind of how that works. Now, there is some discussion around Congress right now of extending that to age 75. That has not passed yet. It is a discussion in the current bill. And so we'll see if that passes. Okay. Brandon, you have a comment? I, I was just going to say that, that you don't just because the, the requirement is that you pull it out and pay taxes on it doesn't mean you need to spend it. And, and so we get a lot of clients that they say, hey, you know, I need to pull this X amount out, but I don't need to spend it yet or I, I want to keep it growing. We can take that out of the IRA, move it into like a non-qualified account, which is just simply it's like kind of like a bank account you can invest in. Um, and we can still have it invested. Essentially, you just need to make sure you pay the tax on it, right? That's the whole purpose. Okay. It's, it's never been taxed. Pull it out. We pay the tax on it. Do you um, know, I mean, you're not CPAs, but what? how do they base the tax percentage? Is that uh, based on the amount you're pulling out? Yeah, so all of it's just taxable as income to you in the year you pull it out. And okay. so it's as if you had gone, just like you had gone, picked up like a part-time job in, in a way, right, that, that you you'll have to report that federal and state taxes um, in the year that you pull that. Is there anything you can do in your 70s? Like if you if you are working and you have to take an RMD to lessen the tax impact or it is what it is? You can. There is one thing. 
one thing that uh, a lot of clients are doing now and that is not very well known where let's just say you have a charitable contribution that you're going to make uh, and say it's $10,000 and let's say your uh, required minimum distribution is $10,000. You can take that required minimum, minimum distribution and send it right directly from your investment account to the charity. It takes care of your contribution for you and you also take care of your required distribution from the IRS and it is not counted as taxes on your income. What if the charity is owned by you? <laughs> careful with that. Yeah. You gotta be they might catch on, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's not to be a qualified uh, charitable account. Yeah, I okay, qualified. Yeah, no, if it's a real charitable qualified account, it just happens to be one that you are the owner of, you know. And and I might just be pointing out the obvious, but but the, the benefit to that is we take we take the money out and we would have recognized full income, right? Fully taxable income on this distribution. Instead, we just push it right over to that charitable organization, a church, a, a any qualified charity. We push it over and then we don't recognize it at all as income. And, and so that I mean, that's just more beneficial than just doing that, taking the distribution and then giving it to a charity indirectly, right? Because depending on, on if you're itemized, things like that, it, it's just a little bit more efficient from a tax standpoint. So, I and then the charity that, doesn't pay tax. Yeah. So yeah. that's nice. Go ahead, because right? you, you do, because it's important because, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's important because people who have accumulated assets, Usually when you call them and say, I, you're required to take this distribution from your IRA, their first question is, ah, I don't really want to do that right now and take that income. And, and so this is something when they learn about that, mm -hmm. that they're actually pretty excited about. Okay. So, you know, Brandon kind of um, talked about the, the itemization, right, on, on your taxes, whether you're itemizing your deductions or taking a standard deduction. So, for, for a married couple in 2022, the standard deduction is roughly $25,900 is what the deduction is that you take off your income. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you know, if you don't have any tax write-offs and in your seventies, cause you've paid off your mortgage, you don't have home interest and, and you have very little in, in state and local taxes, things like that. And you have a $10,000 distribution. Then, then the downside is that if you take it as income, then it's not a big enough donation to a charity to where you're still going to use the standard deduction of 25,900. So you just realized this income and you didn't increase your deductions at all. Mm. Whereas if you go straight from the IRA account to the charity and you don't realize it as income, then it didn't increase your income, but you're still realizing the entire 25,900 of, of donations. And so in, in essence, you know, it saved you whatever your tax bracket is, 22%, 24%, 12%, whatever that is in in taxes on that donation where otherwise you wouldn't have gotten that benefit. And so it can save you a few thousand dollars or five or 10 or whatever the amount is if you're not itemizing your taxes. Yeah, so, Does that make sense? Yep. I'm just going to take this opportunity to hijack the conversation just, just a hair. And, and uh, one other strategy while we're talking about donations is if you've got a, a stock, not in an IRA, 
but in a non-qualified account, right? A, an account that is a taxable account. And it's, it's grown like you picked the right stock and it's grown like crazy. And now you've got all these capital gains built up inside of it. We can actually take that stock and we can donate that directly to charity, get that, you know, deduction and not realize any taxes on it as well. So um, another just little, little tidbit, you do that or, or the other really popular option is, is to take that stock and, and you hold on to it until the owner passes and then it goes to beneficiaries tax-free. And, and so a couple, a couple things we can do there, but uh, yeah, back, back to the RMDs. <laughs> yeah. No, that, it's interesting because if you, I mean, there's a lot of rules in there. If you're not using a, a financial advisor, I don't know how you learned. I mean, you got to really dig in to, to figure out what all these rules are. How many times have, have you seen in your practice that, I mean, people come to you in their seventies and because they're probably not doing things correctly and they just want to know, you know, now, now that they're in their seventies, how to structure what they have. You know, that Brandon, that is an awesome point. Cause another, a huge topic that we wanted to talk about today was Roth conversions. Um, and, and when you're 70, you've got a little bit of a window, what we see typically, right. And this is obviously financial plans are, are all over the place. Um, but typically we see you in some of your highest tax brackets ever right up to the, in the years before you retire right before you retire, right? You're, you're just rocking and rolling in your career. You're in your highest paying years. Um, and then that stops. And a lot of times we see tax brackets come down, right? Your income drops off. Sure, we're taking some distributions out of IRAs, which creates income. Sure, we got some social security. We might even have pensions, but a lot of times our income comes down. And what that allows for is what's called a Roth conversion, where we take the IRA assets and we convert whatever amount, right? We can do 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, whatever you want to do, we can convert it from traditional IRA to Roth IRA. Now the catch is when you do that conversion, you're going to pay taxes on whatever you converted over in that rate. And so if you've just, if your tax bracket has just dropped off, right? Cause you retired it a lot of times makes a lot of sense to, to make conversions up to a certain tax bracket, right? We can we can calculate that and kind of push that up and say, hey, we've got an extra $30,000 in this tax bracket that we think is going to be favorable for you. Um, and we want to take advantage of that and use up the rest of that tax bracket. And we're going to convert $30,000 this year, $25,000 next year, or whatever it is. Usually that window of opportunity, kind of what you're referencing, happens between retirement and age 72. Once those RMDs kick in, a lot of time, depending on the plan, depending on how many IRA assets we have, that's kind of the window where where if you don't do anything about it, your tax brackets dip really low and then they kind of come back up. And so if we can be conscious of that and make sure we utilize any extra cheap tax bracket, right, in those in those few years, it can be highly, highly beneficial. Yeah. And then Rex, right before I get to you, I I mean, it sounds obvious. I didn't even know why. I didn't think that you could break up your conversions into portions. And so that makes sense. If you, I'm th- I was thinking, yeah, well, you got to convert the whole thing, but I guess you don't, you can just take it up to the line of the, of the break in the, in where the taxes would kick into a higher amount and keep it under that line. And if you can do that for a couple of years, then you're, you're in a much better shape. Rex. That's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. So not only is that exactly it, but on, on the Roth conversions, the other thing that we see sometimes in our 70s in with our 70s clients 
is as they get later into their 70s, they start seeing that they're in a lower tax bracket than their kids. And so, you know, if you happen to have a son that, you know, runs podcasts out of a tan van and is just making, what? you know, hand hand over fist money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't and, need to talk about that here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, if he's if he's in the highest tax bracket, for instance, for instance, and you're in your 70s and you're in your 22% bracket instead of the 37, then sometimes we start converting money in our 70s that's going to be passed on to our kids. And so instead of them taking it out at their tax bracket after I'm gone, then I'm going to pay taxes on it at my bracket so that they don't have to at their tax bracket. Wait, Rex, so, so if you give it to your kids, do they, do they have to pay taxes on it or you're just paying taxes on it when you pull it out of your account? So, so let's say you inherited an IRA for $100,000, right, okay. for the sake of argument, Brandon. And then the, the rules are right now that if you inherit that IRA and you put it into an inherited IRA for the benefit of, of Brandon, then you have to pull the money out of that over at some point during the next 10 years, during the next decade. Now, you get to decide when and how much and, and at what rate, but by year 10, it has to be zero. And as it comes out of that IRA account, that inherited IRA account, then it gets added to your income. And so you have to pay income taxes on it as you pull out that inherited IRA. So it's taxed from uh, the original holder. And then when I. Um... No, I'm sorry. So the traditional IRA. Oh, OK. If it was a traditional IRA that you inherited. Yes. Then it had never been taxed. Right. Right. Because right. it went in pre-tax. Okay. Has never been taxed. You inherited it, still hasn't been taxed. Okay. And then as you pull it out, it'd be taxed. But if we convert okay. it to a Roth IRA at dad's rate, so he pays 22% or whatever his tax rate is, and it mm -hmm. goes into the Roth IRA, and then you inherit it in the Roth IRA, then you have up to 10 years to pull it out or let it grow for 10 years tax-free in that Roth IRA. And we don't have to pay your income tax rate. Okay. Does that yeah. make sense? Well, sure. Yeah, it does. But I, this is all stuff I would probably wouldn't have thought of. Again, uh, the reasons why you need a financial advisor. So, uh, <laughs> so dot com. Yeah, right? <laughs> it, it might, might help you. If you have any questions or, or you're concerned about, like you mentioned at the top of the show, your parents might have, might be in that position or, or nearing that position. Um, it's like, Hey, there, you could save a significant amount of money if you just know the rules essentially and, and when to do certain things as, as Brandon was pointing out. So, uh, should we move on to insurance? How are we feeling? That's that's Brandon's favorite topic. Let's do it. <laughs> Brandon's like, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, okay, how do your insurance needs change at age seventy? Life, home, health is a big one. Long term care. Brandon, this is your wheelhouse. Talk to me. <laughs> this is my wheel wheelhouse by force. Um, but I, have, I have spent some time. You gotta enjoy service. it a little bit, right? <laughs> um, no, it's good. So a lot of different changes, right? And and again, every plan is different. But but let's start with life insurance. The the goal typically of life insurance is to become self insured, right? Get to a place where we don't need to pay for insurance. Now, in any financial plan most financial plans anyway, the worst case scenario is that you get one spouse that passes away really early, right? What does that do to us? In a typical financial plan, right? Assets continue on to the next spouse, so no problem there. But then we lose a social security benefit. Let's say you both have a full social security benefit, you're going to lose 
one of those streams of income. Let's say one spouse has worked and the other spouse hasn't ever had any earned income. And, and so the, the one spouse is filing off of the other. Even in that scenario, you're gonna lose one of those benefits, right? The 50% benefit. So you're losing about, works out to be about one third of your social security income. On top of that, you're gonna lose, you're gonna, you might lose on pen, pensions, right? If pensions are involved, and then you're gonna lose your favorable tax brackets. You're gonna go from a married filing jointly tax bracket that, that you can get quite a bit of money out in, in favorable rates down to a single tax bracket. And so it, it goes without saying that a, a spouse passing away early on in retirement is, is definitely a headwind. Um, and so that's kind of in the back of our mind, right? When we're looking at it, like, do we need insurance? Do we need, you know, if one spouse passes away, do we need something to cover the other? Most times we can self-insure. And what that means is we just build up, we've got enough of that investment nest egg such that even if one spouse passes away, we lose some tax brackets, we lose um, part of our social security, we can still get along without insurance. Insurance gets extremely expensive, right? The older you get, the more at risk you are at, at, of dying. I, I read a quote, his, I think author unknown, but it's like, uh, fun is like life insurance. It gets more expensive the older you get <laughs> or, or it costs more or something. I, I probably just butchered it. <laughs> but, yeah. but but you get that, the gist, right? True. Yeah. The the older you get, the more the more you have to pay for it. And so kind of the goal typically is to see how much, you know, how little insurance can we carry while still making sure that that if one of the spouses passes away, we're going to be okay. And that that's going to be different for each plan. Yeah, for sure. So to self-insure yourself, um you base it off of your annual spend, I'm assuming, and then you go like two to three, four times, like how, how do you do that exactly? It, I typically just run scenarios, right? And so we look at it and we say, all right, what happens? And and we have software that makes it really, really nice to, to calculate the more intricate parts of social security, taxes, things like that. But essentially, right, that, that's what you're looking at. If one spouse were to pass away, what? how does this all come together? How, how do my assets provide income? How does, how do pensions, how does social security what are my tax rates looking like? And, and from there, you can kind of get an idea of, hey, is this going to be all right, right? Are my assets enough or more than enough to cover that distribution need? Because likely you'll need to pull a little bit more out of investment accounts. And, and so it's just the question is, can those accounts withstand those higher distribution rates? Rex, you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say one of the one of the questions that, that we get an awful lot is, is somebody that's been paying into permanent insurance. And so these are your, your whole life, your universal life, your variable universal life, your index universal life, all, all those kind of permanent policies that don't have a term tied to it. And, and in their 70s, sometimes we'll get a client that will come to us and say, well, I've got this, this life insurance that's getting more expensive, um, but I've paid into it for 20 years. And I don't wanna, you know, I, I've paid so much into it, I, I'm scared to let it go, right? And and it's interesting because on life insurance, you always need to take a, a point in time analysis on it, right? You need to look at it from this point forward because everything else has just been a sunk cost, right? It's already been paid, it's gone, it's in the past, it provided the insurance up to this point. But from this point forward, what's our new decision? 
And, and we need to make sure that we can evaluate that to see, do we keep the insurance? Do we not keep the insurance? Do we need that much insurance? But lots of times people find themselves in a quandary where they can be self-insured if they want to be self-insured versus keeping insurance, even though they don't necessarily need it. And because it feels good, because they know that they're going to have this, this benefit payout to somebody someday, sometime. And so that's, that's always a little bit of a, yeah, how much how much do people decision, think about that? Right? Because it's like I just want to make sure that if something were to happen to me, you know, my spouse or whoever the beneficiary is gets paid with the insurance money. And and that that's I think a valid thought process. But as as you put yourself in in the age of or in the shoes of a seventy year old, let let's say you've got you know eight hundred thousand or or one point five million, whatever that number is, right? In investments, and that's generating income for you. On top of that, you've got your social security and other social security. The question becomes, well, what if I lose, right? What if I lose a thousand bucks of social security per month? Can my investments make up that difference? What what does my life look like if one spouse passes and I've I've got to pay a little bit more in taxes and I lose a little bit of social security, right? And and those those are the scenarios we're running. And really with a financial plan, that's the beauty of a financial plan is we can help you understand how much you're spending today. Cause most people don't know that most people can't answer that question. How much do I need to exist today? We can find, we can figure that out kind of back into that number for you, figure out based on your current income, current expenses, where you're at, and then project that forward and say, you know, when you're in your sixties or when you're in your seventies, in order for us to maintain your current lifestyle, based on losing a social security and losing that, you know, this is what it's going to take. And oftentimes those scenarios, right? The portfolios don't hold up quite as well, right? They're straining a little bit more. And and the, the conversation, you know, our job is just to help you understand what the risks are, right? And so oftentimes those conversations with clients go something like, hey, it looks like you're in a pretty good place. If If you were, if one spouse was to pass away, especially early on, it looks like you would have to reduce your lifestyle by $800 a month or whatever, whatever that number is. And, and, and clients may choose and say, you know what, I can, I can live with that. Right. <laughs> like based on our plan, we're already planning on living and spending an extra thousand dollars a month. Anyway, I'll just back my lifestyle down to where it's at today. And that's fine. Right. Or, or other, or other clients might say, you know, I can't accept that. Right. We're already so tight budget wise we need to make sure that we have something in place to make sure that this doesn't happen at least early on, right? Because the, the worst risk is that you have a spouse pass away early on in, in 60s or early 70s. Once you're into your late 70s and 80s, it's a little bit easier for those investment portfolios to kind of stomach the difference, you know, and, and, and make up the difference. Um, but but ultimately just comes down to a, a decision on, on the client's part. What How much risk are we comfortable assuming what kind of lifestyle are we comfortable with in the event we both live into perpetuity versus you 105, know, 105. 105. That's the Dan, what do you have some input? Yeah. I, I, over the last 40 years, as, as I think about insurance in this business, uh, I, I think there's two or three different scenarios where it's really, really important to have. First of all, when you're younger and you have small kids, if something happened to you, how would your spouse take care of those kids and that mortgage? Would they lose their home? All of that. So obviously we're not talking about that tonight. We're talking about once you get older uh, and you're uh, hopefully have net worth, uh, is there important, is it important to have insurance? Well, most of the time between having a need to take care of someone that's left behind, if something happens to you, 
and that could be a disabled child or it could be something like that 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 is uh, important to have that insurance if you're in your 70s and you have net worth if you have a substantial net worth and it's illiquid oftentimes that's important to have some insurance to take care of your beneficiaries so they don't have to liquidate everything within nine months uh, at a fire cell in order to pay estate taxes if you have a substantial net worth. Yeah. If you're insurable, that might not be a bad idea to have some insurance if you have a good health and you're insurable. I have an issue, a situation where I'm in my late, my mid sixties and uh, thinking about this and I've thought about this as I start to prepare to retire. I've got a $500,000 insurance policy. Uh, they, they send me a statement every quarter that says send me $900 to pay the premium for it. But every time I get that statement, it also tells me that I've got uh, earnings of about $5,000 in my cash value inside of that policy that pays that $900 very easily. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been paying for that insurance for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. At some point in time, I need to decide uh, uh, when do I cash that one out or leave it there in case something happened to me in the next couple of years, my kids, my wife would get that $500,000. So uh, insurance is a very personal thing. You need to uh, understand it with your family. You obviously need advice from a financial advisor. It's not someone who just sells insurance, but someone who does a full financial plan and insurance is one of the products or services that they can provide like like we do. Dan, you're not in your 70s, you're mid 60s, you're approaching retirement. Um but you you're in the industry. So you, so you know what's something you're 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 proud of or something that is that you're worried about as you look at retirement to th- to make sure that you got all your ducks in a row. Income. You 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 look you 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 get out of bed every morning you say to yourself, do I have enough? Do I have enough assets? Mm-hmm. Do I have enough income? Can I stop taking a paycheck and live off of my investments and live off of the uh, the money that I have accumulated over a period of time? That becomes very important. That goes back to when you're 70, 72, 73 years old and you, and you have a market like last Friday where it was down a thousand points. You've got to make sure you're properly diversified. You've got to make sure that you have a good financial advisor that you can talk to and say, okay, this is okay, isn't it? And, and, and obviously the advisor, if he's a good advisor, will have you properly diversified in a good portfolio where it's not, it's not gonna change your life. If you have four or five months of those types of returns, you're fine because you, you've got the money diversified in a good, solid portfolio. It's not money you're going to use for several years anyway. And over a period of time, the markets always have performed pretty well. Yeah. Rex, do you have a comment? Yeah, I think Dan brings up a, a really good point on the role of life insurance on larger estates. And, and so we're dealing with, with quite a few of our clients right now to where their estates are, are in excess of, of $12 million. And so $12 million is kind of a magic number right now. That's what you can pass down without estate taxes, without death taxes. Um, and it's just a hair over that. Is that it's set to change that number? 
So it, it is set to change. So right now it's it's indexed. And so it goes up a little bit each year. Last year it was at 11,700,000. This year it's at 12,060,000. I'm personally and, concerned about it. So I'm just curious. So Well, I know that that band's appreciating quickly. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it'll continue to increase. Right now that, that law is scheduled to sunset at the end of 20 or yeah 2025 so december 31st 2025 it what reverts it, it will revert to the previous limit of five million dollars oh that's a huge change yeah it, it's a big change unless congress takes action hmm. right and so the the way that the estate tax works is if you have an estate of let's say 20 million dollars and the estate limit is is 12 million then that additional eight million dollars is going to be taxed at anything over a million dollars is taxed at a 40 percent tax rate federally and you still have five percent state on that in the state of utah or whatever your state income tax is for where you reside and so you're going to lose almost half of that eight million dollars in this situation and it's due within nine months. And so a lot of times people mm. with that kind of, of net worth have a lot of real estate or or they may have you know illiquid investments that that, that money is tied up on and it has to be paid in nine months. And so you either have to sell something quickly or borrow against it, or you may have some difficult decisions. And so lots of times we use life insurance to cover that tax bill. And so in this case, we would have a $4 million life insurance policy that we would pay and, and buy to cover the tax bill. So we're not put in a situation of having to, to do a fire sale. Interesting. Uh, you said what Congress needs to act. And I got this little button there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that was a joke. That was, yeah. Uh, Brandon, you yeah. have some more numbers? You better do. All right. So uh, housing, right, is is, is a good one. And, and yeah, are we at peak? This... Are we at the peak? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, let me let me read some numbers. Okay. This is from the National Association of Realtors. The number of existing homes for sale nationwide at the end of March 2022, so just recently, was 950,000. Hmm. So that's how 950,000 um, just shy of a million homes um, were, were on on sale, probably on not market. on sale, yeah. for sale on yeah. the market, March of 2022. The number of existing homes for sale at the end of March 2017, five years previous, was 1.8 million. Yeah. So I, what I've heard is during the pandemic, the build, building of the homes has slowed dramatically. And then post, I don't know if, we're, if we can say we're post-pandemic, but this year two of the pandemic, the building and construction materials were harder to acquire. And therefore, that didn't help speed things up. And so we are in a new home building rut is from what is what I've heard. Right. Well, when you compare that with March of 2007, we were at three point. 8.1 million homes oh. right for sale and 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 this is all during a, a growing population right mm -hmm. that our population was less in 2007 and we're, we're continuing to grow and yet we have less homes for sale not less homes total right but less homes for sale on the market and and 
And unfortunately, with the rising interest rates, it, it that makes it almost harder, right? Is you have you have fewer you have people that are now in great interest rates in their home, right? That they they locked into a few months ago, and and they're looking at you know if you're looking at buying a new home, you could sell your home, buy the exact same home, but your payment goes up dramatically. Yeah, I mean really dramatically. How many? And, and sorry, Brandon. How many people in their seventies make? Uh, uh, housing changes that can't be a big that can't happen 1.3 million people make changes in their 70s just kidding sorry that was a random stat (laughs) that was not accurate you know like down i'm I'm, i guess i'm assuming they would downsize more than anything you know but um they just think i got this giant house i don't need it anymore let's go to a one level you know something like that People do. The, the the problem that I've found over and over with people is as they try and downsize, they, they downsize the size of the home, but rarely the price. And so oftentimes the house, you know, yeah. it, it gets smaller, yeah. but but they rarely are they pulling a lot of equity out. Okay. Rex, did you have something? I, I was going to say on the housing market, one of the things we do see people asking us about in their 70s is reverse mortgages on occasions. Yep, yep. yep. You know, looking at essentially what you're doing is you're you're selling your house to the bank, and there's obviously an interest rate tied to that, and that's kind of beating away at, at your equity as along the way. And so, it's that's an interesting question because there's not not a lot that are just upsizing their homes in their 70s, right? You you downsize, but like Brandon said, you you downsize the square footage and you keep the same payment or even increase the payment to paint upon if you're moving to a to a different climate or a different area or over by your kids or picking up a second home. We probably see more second home mm. pickups in our 70s than we do actually, you know, just trading homes. Yeah. Uh, all right. I have some notes here just to wrap up before we close things out. And it's do do I need to start positioning assets to pass to the next generation in your in your 70s? Um Underneath that, there was a reference for estate planning podcasts for trusts and stuff. So, Brandon, did you have information on that? These are your notes, so I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, you bet. I think I, I think we covered actually really pretty well okay. um, as far as you know, passing assets, things like that. I, I think it is if you are in a position where you're looking at, that you might pass more than five million dollars, which covers a lot more people than you would think, right? Even if you're in your seventies and you're not quite to five million, but but you know your your net worth likely will grow over time, and we need to start looking at that and and just just planning, right? Oftentimes it's just conversations at first of of what would happen, right? What happens if tax laws change to there, or what what happens if they don't? And trying to position assets either in, whether it be in trusts, whether it's figuring out like life insurance stuff, um, passing assets to kids. I mean, all those things really it, it helps to have those conversations. Um, I, I would reference, like like I had in my notes, our, our estate planning podcasts that we had that were really good um, that can kind of give you a little bit more guidance as far yeah, as the you estate. You don't have to listen to just this episode. You can go back and listen to other episodes. That is what they are for. They are uh, probably what they refer to as evergreen in the industry. In other words, the information in past episodes, uh, as long as, you know, the tax laws and stuff don't change too much. A lot of that information will will live on for quite some time. So 
They're good to reference. Okay, very I really good. Like how evergreen goes with through the pines. Through the pines, evergreen. Yeah. Through the, and that's like a, that. I'm not even kidding. That's a, what it's called. So that's a good that's thing. Right. Do that's you guys awesome. have anything else to add, Rex? Uh, before we close out here, before um, like concerns that people come to you with in in their 70s that we've missed, maybe. No, but I I think that when you're in your 70s, sometimes you think I've gotten along just fine this far, right? And so I'll just kind of keep trudging along, doing what I'm doing. And, and that can be a costly mistake, right? Is, is sometimes it's, it's what you don't know that you don't know, um, that hurts you. Mm -hmm. And, and so if you're in your seventies and you're listening to this podcast, you know, that should be the question that you're asking yourself is, is what don't I know that I don't know? And, and let's call, let's call, you know, Baxter Nelson and associates and, and let's look at plan with Baxter and, and let's let's go ask some of these questions and just have them take a look. And am I am I using my money efficiently? Yeah, um, is the question. And b before we we leave, Rex, what if someone is in their seventies and they feel like they are in bad shape and they don't necessarily know, uh, you know, they, why should I contact Plan with Baxter because I'm not sure if I've got anything to do with that they can help me with. You know what I mean, like. What, what yeah, would you, what I, I do. I think like I that? think if it involves a dollar, we're probably involved in it one way or another. And so if we, you know, we can probably point you in the right direction. We can probably connect you with others that may be able to help you if we can't help you directly. And so I think the important thing is is be comfortable <laughs> asking the question. And you know, we're not. Hopefully, we don't come across as overly intimidating on the podcast. I right? hopefully we come across as, as friendly and fun and enjoyable and, and, you know, helpful and down to earth, down to earth vibe like Sasquatch, you know, <laughs> Brandon, what you got? I was just going to say initial consultations are always free, right? So, yeah. so whether that's, you know. and we're always happy to help, right? Even if yeah. you're like, Hey, I don't have enough money, but I, I got a couple of concerns. Give us a call, right? Let, yeah. let, let us, let us point you, even if we're not going to be long-term, working with you, let us point you in a couple right directions. If, if you're like, hey, I think I got this thing as lean as it can be. I don't think there's anything else I can do. Initial consultations are free. Give us a call. Let us poke some holes, right? See if we can move anything around. If we can't, great. If we can find something to help with, even better, you know? And 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 so please don't hesitate to, to reach out to us. Happy to do it. Rex, Brandon, Dan, thanks so much for spending the time with us today on this podcast, financial planning podcast, decade of your 70s. Um, Dan, let us know how that goes. You're close, you know. I will. I will. <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. Looking forward to it. Uh, all right, this has been Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. <laughs>